Friday, I think we should do chapter one, chapter two. No, I won't be here well, then you'll be. Wait. I have to come in before. I thought we're just doing chapter two. Mm, I think I might do chapter one because you should know chapter one. It's already in there. It's in your long term. So you shouldn't have any problem if I say, what do you mean? See what I mean? Okay, good. See, I don't have, I don't foresee. It is really a cool thing. You guys have no idea what an elite group you belong to because most Christians ignore the idea that we are to be like our rabbi. We're supposed to be exactly like our rabbi. And because I think a lot of Christians see Jesus as sort of a God man that can just do whatever he wants whenever he wants to, they miss that Jesus spent thousands of hours and years and years memorizing the text. And so if Jesus didn't have to memorize it, why should I? Um, but when we realize Jesus did memorize the entire Bible, he doesn't know it because he's God. He knows it because he put in the work and Jesus fully expects every Talmud, every disciple, to learn the text, to know the text by heart. David figured out how to not sin. He says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. I love that. David said, well, wait a minute. I think I know how to not sin against God. If I will hide his word in my heart, which is a Hebrew picture for? Memorize it. Memorize the text. Learn the text then I might not sin against you. And that might, isn't a possibility. It's, it's, a, it's a subjunctive. So that I might not sin. I won't sin against you, God, if I have an operating system that is the Holy Bible rather than Mark Dean 10, you know, version 1.5. Yes. It is, remember? Yeah. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. So, uh, is it possible for humans to not sin? You bet it is. And don't let any preacher, teacher, or pastor ever tell you, oh, well, you're human, you're going to sin. You have to sin. It's part of our nature. That is a line of garbage. Paul says we have defeated sin. It no longer has any power over us. Is Paul lying or is he not? Is the Bible contradicting itself or is it not? So, yes, we can go without sin. And that's thanks to Jesus and what he came to give us, which was freedom. He liberated us. It's really hard not to, but to say we have to sin because we're human. No, David said, I know how to do, I know how to not sin. Cool. Okay. Today I'd like to talk to you about another disciple, a highly unlikely disciple. Now there is a discrepancy. There is a debate on how you reckon Jewish identity. Is it through your mother or is it through your father? And this debate had been going on for, I can't tell you how long, a long, long time. Two of our gospels have genealogies in them. I believe it's Matthew and Luke. And one takes it from the father's side all the way down and one takes it down the mother's side. So there's no question and I think Mary was also from the tribe of Judah. She was also Davidic. Yes. Do you think that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, father had any uh, 
biological relation to Jesus at all, or do you think he was completely unrelated? I mean, it's, it's a chance that there's a distant, if, if Joseph was related to Mary, his wife, uh-huh. in the second cousin, third cousin sense, which that's perfectly fine to marry your first cousin or even your second cousin in the Bible for sure. Here, nowadays in America, we're like, first cousin, ooh, that's a little close still. It's a little close, but it's actually permitted in the Bible. All right, so um, Kyle, why are you raising your hand? You're in Hebrew roots, man. I know. Matthew's the genealogy where it's the fathers, right? I believe so. It starts at, um, goes all the way back to God. Yeah, it does, which is, and, and do you know the uh, couple of those women are kind of unmentionables? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, you want to put Rahab the harlot, the prostitute in your genealogy? Are you kidding me? You know, geez. Turn your Bibles if you have them, and if you don't have them, get them. Put them out on your desk. This is, this is definitely uh, not an optional Bible day, Okay. Turn to 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy. This is in the back of the Bible. Nobody be looking in your index. Just in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. Are you ready? This is verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, chapter one, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy, fifth book of Moses. Mm, Good. Those are mnemonic devices and they help tremendously. Um, 23 and verse 2. This is God. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, we've spoken often of discipleship in this class over the last several weeks. Remember, help me out, a student wants to to know what the teacher knows, but a Talmud, a disciple, wants to be what the teacher is. Good. Let's look at discipleship. By the way, this is Ray Vanderlyn's lesson. You can download this on uh, followtherabbi.com, which is his website. Awesome website. Um, I'm, I'm, again, I'm just simply borrowing this and I'm teaching it to you because I don't know that you'll go to followtherabbi.com and, and download and listen to it. But Ray is, um, I'm the neighborhood kid that came out and can barely dribble the basketball with my good hand shooting and Ray's like Michael Jordan, LeBron James. You know, he's the, the master teacher. It's really awesome to hear him do this lesson. So I do uh, tip my hat to RVL on this one, but man, it's good. And I need you to hear it. Um, I want to look at discipleship from a different angle this morning. In order to have a disciple, you need what? You need a rabbi. You need a rabbi. And that rabbi that has Talmudim following him, what does he have that's been endowed and given to him? Smicha, good. He has authority. There is a word... uh, 
smicha that you guys said is exactly right. And what does that word give the rabbi the privilege of doing? To tell what they believe. Their interpretation yeah. of the scripture. Yeah. Good. It's their own interpretation of scripture. Cool. Um, disciples are people with passion. Disciples are people with intensity. Chutzpah, right? They want more than anything else in the world to be just like their rabbi. Every day. Disciples live with the rabbi so they can watch him. They live with the rabbi so they can study him. They want to see how he lives, how he lives the text. That's what I want to see, Jesus. How do you live the text when this temptation is right at your front door? How do you live the text, Jesus, when somebody looks at you and says, blankety blank you and you did nothing wrong? And they say, I hate you and I hate your kind. How do you live the text in that moment, Jesus? How do you live the text when your teacher is unfair and has singled you out and has embarrassed you in front of your whole class? How do you live the text? This is what Tommy Deem need to figure out. So discipleship, you need to know this, only happens in community. Discipleship only happens in community. No one becomes a disciple alone. This monk monastery mentality, it's a reaction to the evils of society. But no one learns to be a Talmud in isolation. This whole idea, this American idea of Christianity being some personal relationship with Jesus, man, we have out lived and overblown that whole mentality, in my opinion. Christianity is not about a personal relationship with Jesus. Christianity is about a communal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And all these songs, like a rose trampled on the ground. You've heard the song, crucified, rejected and alone. He thought of me above else or, or above all no he didn't jesus christ was not thinking of me on the cross i wouldn't even be born for 2000 years well he's god pardon me you're saying jesus had supernatural powers if he does then he contradicts scripture if he does st uh, stories like the paralytic are meaningless jesus doesn't know anything that the father doesn't give him now if the father gave him on the cross Mark Dean. Then wonderful. I, I absolutely believe that with all my heart. But I don't think Jesus was thinking of me. I think the song is trying to say he's thinking of all of us. And I think that's accurate. I think he was thinking of all humanity. But we like to think that Jesus was thinking about Riley Hamilton. Just, oh, she's, she's worth it. And she is, because I know her. But I don't know that Jesus was thinking about Riley or Abigail or Kyle or any one of the rest of us. He was thinking about all of us. So Christianity should be a communal thing. When you think about your own body, which, chill out, hang on, I'm not going there. I'm saying just consider you have a body. Are you thinking, oh yeah, I love that uh, cell number 2,780,876,541. I love that cell. He's so awesome. No, you think about, man, I'm so glad my arm works. I'm so glad I have skin on my face. <laughs> um, I'm glad I have two eyeballs. You're not thinking about the, the, the microscopic cells inside your pupil. Or even an A cell. That's how we, it would sh 
it would be in Christianity is you are a cell of the three trillion in the body of Christ. And when God looks at his son, the body of Christ, he doesn't see you. He sees his son, right? He sees the body. Now, are you important? Absolutely. Does he have every hair of your head numbered? Absolutely. Are you more valuable than even the birds? Absolutely. But let's not get carried away. We have value to God, but it's not like God couldn't live without me. I'm sorry. He probably could. And by probably, I mean absolutely. I know that's not what we like to hear because it's what we hear in church is how important I am. And it's really how important we as the body are. So there are some rabbis who chose unlikely disciples. Do you know one of those rabbis? Rabbis. Jesus, yes, good, good answer. That's usually that, that Sunday school answer. If you just completely tune out and totally are lost and the teacher asks you a question, just say Jesus. And about 80% of the time, that's the right answer. Amen. All right, who is the other rabbi? Do you remember the two schools of rabbinic thought? Hillel, Shammai. Hillel was very liberal. Shammai was very conservative. You say, well, gosh, I want to go with Shammai if he's conservative. Uh, No, you don't. Jesus sided with Hillel a lot more than he sided with Shammai. Liberal? Not liberal like, yay, abortion. Yay, divorce. Yay, homosexual. No, that's not what Hillel. Hillel said, let's be lenient with the interpretation of the text. And Shammai said, no. That's how it is. Burner to the stake. Whoa, gosh, that's very conservative, very tight, very restricted. So Hillel was known for choosing his disciples. Now, whether he did that to make a point one time, but he broke the mold. He broke the mold because disciples always choose the rabbi. The rabbi never chooses the disciples. So when Jesus chooses his disciples, who is he being like? He's being like Hillel, which is kind of cool. H-I-L-L-E-L. Okay. Now, Jesus is the classic example. Who are some unlikely disciples Jesus chose? Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. Yeah. Um. <laughs> okay, Jordan said, let me think. All of them, yeah. I think she's right. A nine-year-old? Little kid? Snot-nosed little guy? How about, yeah, Nathaniel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, that's the Nathaniel story in John. It's like, oh, you're a nice guy. Um, fishermen, like they're fishermen. People don't tend to have the highest regard for intellectual power uh, of folks that work trades. Plumber, <laughs> yeah, that's just a big fat guy with a crack showing out of a ba- you know, bag of his pants. And I, I say that because I am a plumber by trade. And no, I don't think plumbers, any plumbers are just big, fat, dumb people at all. They have to be highly, highly um, technical, very analytic. They, they have to solve a problem in a limited amount of time with a very limited amount of resources and they got to do it and it's got to work. It's got it's to not only to work, to be functional, it's got to look good too. That's an engineer, by the way. That's an engineer with a wrench on, on his belt. That's what a plumber is. He's awesome. Um, so you guys that are taking Votech next semester, man, we're going to learn to plumb. Plumbing is awesome. 
<laughs> we'll see. Tax collectors were unlikely. Zealots were unlikely. He had two zealots on his team. He had a zealot is somebody who would revel at the opportunity to jump out of the shadows and put a Sakari curved bladed knife and slit the throat of a Roman soldier and then jump back into the shadows and all of his friends would give him a high five. It's gang initiation. It's, hey, kill that person if they flip their lights at you. That'll be the person that we kill at night, and then you can get into our gang once you do that. Uh, you kill a Roman soldier, you get into the oh. zealot gang. Who is it? It's the zealot. It's the, it has the same Simon. name as someone. Simon, Simon and Judas were both zealots. Judas yeah. Was a zealot. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to look at disciple making this morning, not under the guise of Jesus, but of another gentleman that chose some disciples. So come with me. Shaul. Say Shaul. Shaul. Saul was a Jew. As in the apostle Paul. He doesn't even start going by that name, Polos, until chapter 10 of Acts. This is the Saul that put Christians in prison. He beat them. He killed them. All the people that stoned Stephen to death laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Shaul. Saul, Shaul, was a Jew. He was always a Jew. He never stopped being a Pharisee. He studied at Harvard. He studied with Gamliel. Guess who Gamliel was? Gamliel is the grandson of Hillel. Hillel, Jesus, Gamliel. Gamliel is equivalent to Albert Einstein. Okay, this guy was absolutely brilliant. He was a disciple maker as well as being a disciple of Gamaliel, Paul was, and then of Jesus. Shaul, Paul, selected 12 disciples. That's in the book of Ephesians. Why would he select 12 disciples? Maybe Maybe exactly because Jesus selected 12 disciples. Who does Shaul want to be like? He wants to be like his rabbi. Now, Shaul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas left Antioch. They went to a place called Cyprus. On Cyprus, he has his first convert. It's a Roman governor named Sergius Polos. Sergius Polos. Now listen to this. This is crazy. He is a famous Roman, Sergius Polos. They've found inscriptions and plaques and other kinds of things that he has done. What happens to Saul after he meets Sergius Polos? He starts going by another name when he's in Greece. Polos. He goes by the name Paul in uh, Italian, Latin, it'd be Polos. So he meets Sergius Polos. Shaul doesn't sound like Polos at all, but something happened in their relationship. I think he's, he changes his name to Polos. Second, at this point, he gets a passion to go to Rome. He leaves Cyprus and goes to the very town that Sergius Polos is from called Antioch in Pisidia. Very rural, very isolated. How weird that he would just happen to go totally out of the way and off of the beaten path to go to this little town called, called Antioch of Pisidia. Why? Because his new buddy, Sergius Polos, is from there. So it's interesting. By the way, Antioch of Pisidia is built on seven hills. The whole city is built on seven hills. Do you know what other world-famous icon blasting, uh, proclaiming city is built on seven hills? Mm-mm. It's uh, 
It's got uh, a lot of pasta, a lot of linguine. Rome is built on seven hills. Yeah, it's a mini Rome. So Antioch and Pisidia is a tiny version of Rome. It's like when you go to Nevada, Nevada, excuse me, all you Texans, Nevada. When you go to Nevada, as we say in Colorado, you go to Nevada and you look, you go down the strip and you're in Las Vegas, you see a mini Eiffel Tower. You see a mini Statue of Liberty. When you go to um, Antioch and Pisidia, it's like a mini Rome. It's really cool, okay? So why does Paul go here first? It's out of the way, but he always, always goes to the synagogue first, no matter what city he goes into. All right, the most conservative Jews live here in this rural part of Asia. He is in Antioch and Pisidia. That's kind of country back there, you know what I mean? <laughs> so he sits in the back of the synagogue, and word gets around that Shaul, Gamaliel's star pupil, Oh my gosh, he's in our synagogue. Who? It's like saying, oh my gosh, that's Brad Pitt. Where? He, he's in our church. That's Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, I guess when they were married at one time. Oh my God, what are they doing in Midland, Texas? In Podunk, like, yeehaw, Texas. Like, what in the world? I can understand Dallas, Houston, but Midland? That's Paul. He's sitting in the back of this synagogue and everybody's like, is that Paul? That's Joe. Who's that? Gamliel, Hillel, Gamliel, Paul. Oh my gosh, of course they wouldn't go Paul. They, that's a Latin thing. They would have said, that's Shaul. Okay, so word gets around. He's in there. Uh, after the Torah reading, the Haftar reading, and the commentary, some of the rulers of the synagogue, they send word to, to Paul uh, to say a few words. So Paul gets up with no preparation, by the way. This kind of shows you what kind of Pharisee he is. He gets up. And he preaches a sermon in which no less than 20 references out of the Old Testament. He pulls, pools, and proclaims about Jesus using 20. That's what we're doing in this class is try to figure out where did these people go to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, you guys have notes and notes and notes and notes full of stuff now that's going... Now, I know where some of the places are that he went. Remember the genealogy? You remember Joshua? You remember, I don't know, Moses? Um, who else was a forerunner? Joseph? Uh, Isaac? Man, Paul, boom, 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 pulls out no less than 20 references from the Old Testament. On the spot, no heads up. Could you give a Devo for 10 minutes? Talk 10 minutes solid. On the spot, no heads up. Just boom, Kyle, get up and give us a Devo. And he gets up there and goes, all right, you know, could you do that? Maybe, Maybe. probably not. I mean, you might mumble around and kind of stuff, but would it be a good Devo? Probably not. You think Paul's sermon was pretty good? Oh, man. So Paul took seriously, he lived 1 Peter 3.15. Obviously, Paul never read 1 Peter 3.15, but Paul lived, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hey, why are you a Christian? Hey, why are you uh, here, Paul? What can you share with us? Could you make a defense to us about the Messiah? And Paul says, you bet. I've got my defense already prepared. Here it goes. Love that scripture. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Okay. Paul starts preaching. He gets through his whole sermon. Nobody has a problem with his claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Everybody's just sitting there. Oh, that's, wow. Nobody has a problem. Verse 26, verse 33, verse 39 of chapter 13. Paul gets to the end where he says, and you know what else? And everybody says, what, Paul? And he says, 
the Gentiles are in. And they say, in what? Trouble? He says, no, the family. They're part of our family. They get up, they grab Paul, and they drag him out of town, trying to take him to a 20-foot cliff so they can tie his hands and throw him off. What's this Gentile business? Brothers? <laughs> Children of God? There was a sharp, sharp dispute. So this plot was hatched to do something about this Paul character. Isn't it funny how they go from, look who it is, it's the famous Paul, to we hate this scumbag, let's kill him. He mentions Gentiles are brothers and God's children and people get upset. He mentions Jesus is the Messiah, everybody's happy, no problem. Make note of verse 45, when Jesus, or sorry, when the Jews saw the crowds were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Why does Luke offset the Jews from the word crowds? Would Jews be upset about Jews coming in to hear more Jewish stuff? Probably not. Would Jews be upset if a bunch of Gentiles were coming in asking questions about how I can be saved? Maybe so. So the Jews from Antioch and Pisidia incite the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up this persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drive him out of their city on pain of death. That's a death threat. You come back and, and we will kill you. So Paul and Barnabas head for Iconium. It's about 60 miles east. In Iconium, again, the members of the synagogue are divided. Half of them think this is amazing that, that, that the Messiah has come and we didn't know it. And, and Paul knows who he is. And he's got some pretty good evidence from scripture. Okay. The unbelieving Jews and Greeks stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they threaten to stone them and they drive them out of their city. So now they head south to a place called Lystra. Lystra is in a region called Lyconia. Now you only read, need to remember this because Lyconia is like uh, the most brother kind of get backwoods. Yeehaw! Let's eat some roadkill. I'm hungry, you know. We're talking major backwoods. These are guys, like RVL says, these are guys that would have had like swords hanging in the back of their chariot, you know. Not the shotgun in the truck, but the sword in the chariot, right? These are guys that park their, their donkey in the front yard in like four foot tall grass. Where'd the donkey go? I don't know. We need to cut the grass sometime, Cletus. Um, <laughs> lost a donkey again. Come here, donkey. Um, uh, these are guys that spend 40 hours a week at Walmart and they don't even work there. <laughs> They're just hanging around because it's Walmart. These are the Lyconians, okay? So Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, all right? And uh, what's, what's cool about Lyconia is, is it's famous in history for this Greek myth as to why there is this double-trunked linden tree. It was a linden tree, had two trunks, and the trunks braided and, and grew together into one tree. A real tree. Started as two, and it grew together as one. Linden. 
And, and, a, and a Greek myth was formed long before Paul and Barnabas about this linden tree. Where did it come from? How come it has two trunks? Why did it grow into one tree? That's amazing. Have you guys ever seen two trees grow into one? I haven't. Here's the, the myth. This is really cool. Yes, Jupiter and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes. Jupiter and Mercury came discuss. Now, I want you to think back. When I start giving you this myth, I want you to, don't, don't shout it out yet, but when you got it, just go like, I got it. I, I, know that, I know exactly what that sounds like. Okay, see if you all don't do that. Jupiter and Mercury came disguised as ordinary peasants. They came to Lyconia. They, they became disguised, right? They came disguised as ordinary peasants. And they start asking people for a place to sleep, a place to stay. And all the people in the town reject them. No, there's no room here. I don't have, no, you, we're not going to be hospital. Where, where do you think that is? Nope. Nope. Way older than that. Hang on. Let, let me give you some more details. You don't worry. You don't have enough. You don't have enough yet. They'd been rejected by all, so, so wicked were the people of that land when at last they came to Bacchus and Philemon and their simple rustic cottage. Though the couple were poor, their generosity far surpassed that of the rich neighbors, among whom the gods found doors bolted and no word of kindness. Where is it? What is this story of? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes! This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most Christians think Sodom and Gomorrah was dis destroyed because of homosexuality. It was not destroyed because of homosexuality. That is, ask any Jew, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? And, and no one will say because of homosexuality. Yes, there was people doing, practicing homosexuality and um, sodomy. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because there was no hospitality there. There was a lack of hospitality. And then the crowd tried to... Yeah, they, they ask him to bring out the young men so we may have sex with them. From young men to old men were at the door that night in the mob. Um, Wait, men were saying that? Yeah, the men were asking the... Men asked Lot if he would let the guests that he was housing to come out so that they could have sex with them. After serving the two guests food and wine, Bacchus and Philemon, Bacchus noticed that although she had refilled her guests' beechwood cups many times... The pitcher was still full. Realizing that her guests were gods, she and her husband raised their hands in supplication and implored. Wait a minute, back up. Bacchus suddenly noticed that every time she filled up her guest's cup, her pitcher was still full. What does that sound like? Thank you. Good. So now we're blending stories from the Bible. And these Romans think they're coming up with something new. They're ripping this stuff off from the Torah. Philemon thought, oh, I'm sorry. She raised her hands in supplication and implored indulgence for their simple home and fare. Philemon thought of catching and killing the goose that guarded their house and making it into a meal. But he went to do so. It ran and jumped into Jupiter's lap for safety. Jupiter said, no, you don't need to slay the goose, that they would be leaving town soon. This was because he was going to destroy the town and all who had turned them away and not provided due hospitality. See, even the ancient Romans and Greeks that formed this myth knew the scriptures. They knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now they changed it, but they knew it. 